summer-like weather in October. Really a blessing, isn't it? I would like to present this morning part two of a message that we were ministering on last week. First Timothy 6.12 tells us that we are to fight the good fight of faith. As a Christian, the Bible says that we're in warfare and our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when it comes to the devil, we're told to be sober and vigilant because he is our adversary and he's seeking whom the Bible says he may devour. We're told in Ephesians 6.12 to put on the whole armor of God because sometimes the problems that we're going through in our life, the struggles, the trials, the tests, the problems, sometimes it's because of our relationship to the world, we're too close to it, we're too close to worldly people and they're dragging us down. So the Bible tells us to overcome the world and its influence. Sometimes it is the old habits and ways of the flesh. That's probably the most, uh, probably our worst enemy is ourself. But then there's also that third element that the Bible speaks about, that we have an adversary, Satan, who is seeking to destroy our lives in some way. And he's our arch enemy, and we're told to be sober and to be vigilant and not be ignorant concerning his devices. The Bible says we've been given unto us power and authority over all of our over all the power of him. But at the same time, he's a worthy foe. We've seen in the Bible last week we looked at how that he was able to influenced Peter after that great revelation he received about Christ as the Messiah. We saw how that he was able to hinder the Apostle Paul in regard to his missionary trips. We saw how he was able to influence right in the church Ananias and Sapphira to whereby they lied about something that they didn't even have to lie about. You know, they sold a piece of property for a certain amount and said, we had sold it for thus and such. They could have been honest and said, they sold a piece of property for, let's say, a thousand dollars. They could have said we sold it for a thousand and left it at that. Nothing would have been said. But they said they sold it for, let's say, two thousand. The amount's not exactly specified. But the result was that Peter said, "Satan, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie under the Holy Spirit?" And of course, in other places like First Timothy five fifteen, the Bible shows how that many have departed from the faith, giving heed to Satan and sadistic spirits and so forth. And so who are we? I mean, stop and think about it. We have an arch enemy. We have one who is seeking to defeat us and overcome us. And if you've ever been overcome, if you've ever fallen, and then really stopped and thought to yourself, why did I do that? Why did I pursue that course of action? And you've really stopped to think about it, and you're really pouring your heart out to God in repentance, if you really stop to think, Satan moved swift and fast and with a lot of power and a lot of deception, and you got caught up in it, even though you may not afterwards you're sorrowed about it, but if you really stop to think about it, Satan moved very fast and very quick, gained the victory in her life. We raise the question, why is Satan gaining so much victory in the life of the Christian if he's a defeated foe? Probably one major reason why is because people are complacent about it. They don't really stop to consider how strong a force they're up against. I guess you could compare it, so to speak, to the modern-day 
era that we're living in. I've heard different ministers, for example, say that it could be very, very quick in happening that we could be attacked by countries such as Iraq, that we could be attacked by countries such as Russia. You know, it's really interesting that Russia, while they made a turn under Reagan and the Cold War, they were it was stopped. Now, if you're following up with the news, Putin declaring himself prime minister, going to elect a president, he's really moving, it appears to be, in a direction of, of reinstating the old Marxism, becoming a czar. They were always good under that economy. They always struggled under capitalism. And airplanes have been flying over into our airspace from Russia. They're sending airplanes in to, you know, just kind of make us, just to poke at us, just to jab at us. One commentator said, they're not trying to start any wars or anything, but they're just trying to say, hey, we're still here. See, before that, during Reagan's time, you'd find submarines and so forth that would be moving on into our territory that would just stir up our military because they'd send our submarines after them and they'd play cat and mouse. There were airplanes, for example. There were jets that would fly into our territory and they would just play cat and mouse with one another. It was just a constant little thing to whereby they were always trying to provoke a little bit. They really didn't do anything, but they were just trying to say, look, we're a force. We're trying to provoke. They recently tested a weapon that's, that was ten times stronger than a nuclear weapon that landed on Japan during Hiro, Hiroshima, and yet it's not nuclear. Russia is back. I've heard ministers say that, and maybe they are. And even if, even if Russia was nothing, even if Iran was nothing, I mean, just stop and think. Here we have some guy with a turban sitting out in the middle of a poppy field planning attacks against the United States that take down, take down two huge towers in New York that shot the side out of, a, out of our Pentagon. And that one was headed right for the White House, and if it hadn't have been for some men on board that rose up to stand against it, either the White House or Capitol, Capitol building could have been hit. I mean, we live in an era and a time where too many liberals sit back and say, oh, they're nothing. Iran's nothing. Russia's nothing. We don't have to worry about these people. And yet, we've been attacked. And, and partly due to the fact that we were just not as alert and on guard as we should have been. And spiritualizing that, I think it's the same way with Satan. If we're naive about his power, if we're not careful. He's able to take advantage of us and attack some area of our life when we're not looking. The question was raised by a professor in one of his, in a Christian university to his student of 30. Remember I talked about this last week. He asked him how many of them believed in a personal being, a personal being called Satan. Three did, 27 did not. And he went on to say to them, well, how many of you believe in a personal being or how many of you would define God as a spirit being who is able to influence men unto good? They all raised their hand and said, yes. Then he came back and said, well, why do you affirm the existence of a spirit being who can influence people for good, but deny the reality of a spirit being who can influence people for evil? I mean, you have to stop and think about that. Is Satan real? We've never seen him, but we've never seen God either. And yet, if there is this powerful spirit being the Bible warns us about that is able to influence us unto evil, and we just treat him like he's nothing, if he does exist, we have power and authority over him, and I really question and doubt whether or not he exists because, well, like these people said, it's just too ghostish, 
just too ghoulish, just too comic bookish was their attitude. And if you remember, I said that that attitude came, comes forth from an attitude that was in the Middle Ages toward the devil to whereby they thought that resisting him was by the use of paintings and artwork that would be humiliating and putting him down. These were some of those pictures that we talked about. They depicted the devil here, for example, during medieval times as someone that was mocked and ridiculed because they said he's a being that took great pride in how he looked, great pride in his wisdom and knowledge. So they attacked him by humiliating him, by making fun of him, by ridiculing him. And this goes way back. You can see the dates on some of these pictures. 1267 for Gatto Satan. 1308 for Dante's Inferno. 1435 for Michael Parker, William Blake, 1757. Now what they did was up into our day and age, when people think about the devil, they think of the, of the devil as a horned creature that's red, that has a forked tail. And in their mind, they just think of it again as a leftover from a Halloween party, so to speak. They don't take the devil seriously, so I'm saying. And if we don't take the devil seriously, then we're going to end up finding that we can be hindered in our walk of faith. He can come into our lives and he can hurt, he can kill, he can destroy. The Bible says, don't be deceived. The truth is, the Bible says he's an angel of light. He's a counterfeit. Think of it in this regard. He is an impersonator of the Holy Spirit. You know what an impersonator is? A ventriloquist, for example, will seek to impersonate by some wooden dummy on his arm. He'll try to, to, to make it seem like that dummy's talking. A personator, for example, sometimes men will dress up like women, or women will dress up like men, and they are male and female impersonators. They're trying to come on like they're something that they're not. A hypocrite is really an impersonator. Well, the king of, of impersonators, the king of hypocrites, is the devil himself. And he seeks to impersonate the Holy Spirit. And he's going to seek to do that in your mind and in my mind. The Holy Spirit speaks to us in our mind. I remember one time a person saying to me, well, the Holy Spirit can speak to me in my mind, but the devil can't speak to me in my mind. I said, where did you ever come up with that at? The Bible said in 2 Corinthians 10, we're to cast down those thoughts that come into our mind and that are not godly. But that was their attitude, is the devil can't speak to me. So then every thought, I guess, that came under their mind, they thought was the Holy Spirit. And it's no wonder that they get off on various different tangents, doing things that are out of line with the Word of God. That's just not true. If one ever studies about the devil and the occult, just comparing with the gifts of the Spirit, you'd see where that's not true. The gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, the gifts of healing, gifts of miracles, and so forth, the power gifts, the, the knowledge gifts, these are all impersonated by the devil. He will take, for example, and when it comes to the word of knowledge or wisdom, which are the knowledge gifts, he will counterfeit that through psychics, astrology, fortune-telling. And, of course, that can be spread out in, a long, in many different ways. I'm not going to teach on the occult this morning. We've done that before. But that's Satan's counterfeit to that. Or when it comes to things like miracles and healing and power, he uses magic. He uses charms. 
He uses a number of different things that people follow in which they're trying to gain supernatural power or supernatural knowledge through means that God has said are an abomination unto him in the book of Deuteronomy. But the point is, he is a counterfeiter. And if you study the occult, you'd find where many of the phrases, many of the things that are said are done in the name of the name of, the, of God, done in the name of the Trinity. We've read many of these things. We shouldn't be ignorant of that here in this assembly. But the point is, the reason why is because he is a counterfeiter. The Bible says he's crafty, he's eloquent, his appearance is stunning. He's as a lion seeking whom he may devour. He's the opposite of the lion of Judah. The lion of Judah comes with great strength for righteousness, but the lion, Satan, comes with his power and devices to seek to hinder us and stop us from our Christian walk and growth. Well, let's talk about a couple different things this morning. This is part two. We covered all that in great detail last week. If you weren't here, you can get the CD or get it online. But the two ways that Satan will seek to deceive us and hinder us is going to be by temptations and accusations. I'd like you to look over to Genesis chapter 3, by temptations and accusations. We'll probably focus most of this on temptations. And what God wants us to do is to resist the temptations that he throws at us for the purpose of tripping us up, getting into sin, getting out of fellowship with God, opening ourselves up to his oppression. And you can see where he started tempting very early in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Had God said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You know, they were in this beautiful garden. And there were, you know, it isn't specified, but maybe I would be not exaggerating to say hundreds of trees. Maybe there were thousands of trees. I don't know. And they were allowed to, to eat of all the fruit that was there out of all of these trees except one tree. And God said, now all of those trees are yours, but that one's mine. That one you're not allowed to touch. Don't take it. He put a restriction on them. And so Satan comes along, and what he says is, did God really say that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, he doesn't say that to us today. I mean, if he were to come in our minds and say to us, did God say that you were not allowed to eat of that tree? We'd know right away who that was. Well, that's the old serpent himself. Man, that's several thousand years old. God, you better come up with something better than that. And he has. What he says to us is, where do you find that in the Word? You ever heard that one before? Where do you find that in the Word? Are you sure the Bible really says that? I mean, his purpose is to attack us at a place to whereby we question and, and doubt the Word of God. Isn't that what Eve was doing? He was trying to get her to question and doubt the Word of God. It wasn't a written Word of God. It wasn't written Scripture, obviously, in those days. But God had given them a verbal revelation of what they were allowed to do and what they were not allowed to do, and he was trying to get them to question that. We have a written revelation. And we have an inward revelation from the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And he said he would lead us and guide us and direct us. And whenever he has told us to do something, whether it be in the Word or whether it be inwardly by the Holy Spirit, and we know that we're to do something, he's going to come along and challenge that. And he'll make statements like, are you sure that's the Holy Spirit? Where do you find that in the Word of God? 
And the purpose, you see, is to get us to the place to whereby he makes us think that our rights are being taken away from us by the word that we've heard or by the inward voice that we sense by someone who's proclaiming themselves to be a minister of God or maybe God directly. But, you know, it happens in a lot of different ways. All of our lives are a little bit different. But the devil is one that's going to come in and he's going to raise questions about things like things that we may like to do, that we may enjoy to do, or we may be tempted to do. Take areas of emotion, for example. Where does it say in the Bible that we can't get angry? Now, you may say, come on, uh, he would never say that. Oh, I beg to differ, friend. That's a real common one. Many years ago in one meeting, I had a man that, that, that I've shared this before. He was kind of bald-headed, and he got, red, he got red-headed. Just said it makes me angry to think I'm angry. And Christians today are always seeking to justify the prohibition in the Bible about anger by saying you're allowed to get angry as long as it doesn't go over a 24-hour period, or you're allowed to get angry as long as there's a cause, because the Bible says that we're not allowed to get angry without a cause. Well, there's always a cause to get angry. I mean, if you get angry without a cause, boy, you've got a problem. But there's always something. I mean, it may be very small, or it may be very some, you know, something that's very large, but there's still a cause. So where would you draw the line on that? But if you suggest to people that anger is a sin, they'll come back and say, oh, no, that's just a way to ventilate the frustrations and emotions and get them out, whereby you're not building them up from within. Deb and I were out, went on a bike ride yesterday, and we were riding along. She made some comment to me about how, because we saw people walking dogs along the trail. And she made some comment. She said, you know, I read where people that have dogs live seven years longer than those who don't have dogs for pets. And I thought, is she trying to say that we want a dog? We don't want a dog. We've already had our fill of dogs. But anyways, I said to her, I, just in chest, of course, I said, that's probably because they get a dog, and if they get angry and upset, they can take it out by kicking the dog rather than by, you know, ventilating. That's the way they blow off steam is by kicking the dog around. I'd never kick a dog. A cat? No, that might be different. Highest respect for a dog. <laughs> I'm being funny. i got to watch what I put on tape. This is a joke. But, but the point is that people want to justify that because that's what they want to do. And, and, and to imply that that's a tree that I can't eat of, that, that's a violation of my right. i got a right to get angry if I want to get angry. Or it can apply to other things. Divorce, for example, is a touchy subject today. Where in the Bible does it say that, that I can't get a divorce, people will say. Well, there are a lot of places in the Bible which show God's attitude toward divorce, but I'm just saying, we live in an hour in which a lot of the marriages, sometimes 50% of them are going down the tubes. And I'm not saying there isn't some really uh, emotional, physical causes, but as a Christian, God expects people to turn to Him in time of help for their marriage to straighten things out, and God expects them to persevere and to endure and to use their faith and to practice what the Bible says. I mean, if you're sitting back and waiting for your wife to improve, or you're sitting back and waiting for your husband to improve, God's sitting back and waiting on you to improve. You can only deal with yourself. If you're the loving husband that you ought to be, then love begets love. Or if you're the loving, respectful wife that you ought to be, love and respect will beget love and respect. If you want to reap it, sow it. 
You don't sow it, you won't reap it. It starts with you. You don't wait for your mate to get perfect to whereby you start loving them. The Bible says husbands love your wives. And wives love and respect your husbands. It doesn't say to do that toward those that are perfect. Quite to the contrary, it says to do those when they're not perfect so that you set the family apart under the influence of the Holy Spirit and let him work. So start with yourself. But the great temptation is to listen to Satan and say... I'm not going to put up with that. I'm not going to take that. I'm going to stand up against that. You know what I'm saying. And if it leads to divorce and you're talking to people in the world, that yeah, I've done the same thing. I wouldn't put up with that and all the rhetoric. And all of a sudden you find a Christian that maybe would come along and say, you know, that's not a Christian thing to do. Right there the devil's going to sit on your shoulder and say, where do you find that in the Bible? Where do you find that in the Word? And we could go on and on. Sexual issues, for example, there are a lot of people that question whether or not homosexuality, whether it's okay or not okay. I mean, that you know, where do you find in the Bible that it says you can't be a homosexual Christian? I've had that presented to me. We taught a whole series on homosexuality and explained that. But that's a common question today. Where do you find that I can't be a Christian and a homosexual at the same time? God's Word plainly lays it out. Or take drugs, for example. Where do you find the Bible that it says I can't smoke marijuana? Where do you find the Bible that says I can't uh, take crack cocaine? Where do you find in the Bible that I can't get a little buzz on LSD? Where do you find that at in the Bible? See, Satan's always one right there to try to imply that we've heard something from someone, and he's right there to challenge it. Did God really say that you were not allowed to partake of that tree? We could be talking about Lawsuits, lying, abortion, ungodly friends, movies, music, on and on. Oh, the list, I could go on. People say to you, for example, where does it say in the Bible that I can't celebrate some of the holidays? And you quote back scripture. I mean, God's word said he wanted to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And as soon as you say something like that, then right away he'll come back with with a counter reply to something like that to make the implication that, well, you're just not, quote, interpreting that right. He did that in a moment. We'll look at it. But I feel like people today are like little children where it seems like every time you give them an inch and another inch and another inch and another inch, as soon as you take an inch away, they whine crying that you're not fair. You know? Mommy, can I have a friend over for the weekend? Yeah, that's fine. Mommy, can we... Watch television? Sure, that's okay. Mommy, can we get out some of the toys? That's fine, honey. Just make sure you put them back. Mommy, can we have some ice cream? Yes. Mommy, can we go outside and play ahead and go see? Yes. But as soon as Mommy says, now remember, at 10 o'clock you're going to bed, they'll go, 10 o'clock? 10 o'clock? Oh, you never let us do anything. You heard that one before? It's implying you see that your rights have been violated and taken away. I have to go. I have to see a. I wrote down here and I didn't quite fit it in. But it's just, he's trying to get us to have a bad attitude toward any kind of a law, any kind of a rule, any kind of a prohibition, any kind of restriction that God may have put upon us for our life, and He has. He hasn't given us a free course to do whatever we want. He has said plainly in the book of Judges that when every man did that which was right in his own eyes, that's why they had constant judgment upon their tribes and nations. They didn't want to submit to his laws 
and his principles and his word. I happened to drive by a woman, or a woman drove by me the other day while we were on our way to a bike ride, and the back of her bumper sticker said, Catholic women, ordain them or don't baptize them. And I thought that was kind of funny. And I knew right away what she was trying to say. So we, we stopped and had breakfast on the way, and sure enough, that woman pulled in right in front of us, and she had on this T-shirt. I cannot tell you what was on it. It was profanity. <laughs> it was... Look at that. It was filthy profanity. And I thought, there's one good reason why if you're a Catholic woman wanted to be ordained, we wouldn't want you to get ordained. You know what I'm saying? But it was an attitude of, we have a right, and you're taking away that right. Well, now, if that was Catholic dogma taking away that right, then I might agree with her on that. But if it's the Word of God, then what she's doing is developing a bad attitude toward God. And that is just exactly what the devil does. Now, if you look at Genesis 3, how Eve responds to that, she comes back with the Scripture. Or she comes back with the Word of God. For us, it's Scripture. But she comes back with the Word that she heard. The woman said unto the serpent, We can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so the second attack is, then immediately the devil comes back with, you're not going to die. That's not right. That's not the proper interpretation. That's not going to happen. Again, he's implying that the integrity of the Word of God is not to be taken for what, it, what he says. He challenges. He questions. He's trying to get people to whereby he's making them think that they have a right to every tree in the garden. And that one that they don't have a right to, that they've been told that they don't have a right to, they really have a right to it. There's been some miscommunication, misunderstanding, somewhere along the line. Go ahead. You have the right to eat of it. And as soon as they did, they plunged all of us into sin and disobedience. We inherited it. But that's what the world says today. The world says that we have a right to do what we want to do. We have a right to get involved in marital sexual affairs? I mean, what business of that is anybody else? We have that kind of right. The government's not going to arrest you if you have an affair on your husband or an affair on your wife. The government isn't necessarily going to say, you can do it, but they're not going to do anything to you if you do. So it's a kind of an implied right. Or you've got the right to get drunk in your own home if you want. You've got the right to get angry. You've got the right to pursue money in a variety of different ways to make yourself wealthy and rich. I mean, you can do it in a number of different ways, and it's your right. If you want to gamble, that's your right. If you want to own a business and hire illegal aliens, that's your right. If you want to charge extremely high prices because there's nobody else in the area to compete with you, that's your right. And as soon as somebody comes along and starts talking about ethics and morals, and restrictions that God has put in his word about keeping equal balances upon things, about not taking usury upon people and taking an advantage on them because they're in a disadvantaged situation. And we could go on and on because the Bible talks about all these different things. As soon as you start talking about those things, especially in areas of money, you and I know right away that the devil's right there in some way to imply that, hey, this, is, this sounds a little bit legalistic. This sounds a little bit too harsh. This sounds, sounds a little bit too uh, prohibitive. 
And he's right there to try to get you to compromise on the Word of God, just like he was doing with Eve, by saying, listen, you're not going to die. The problem here is that God just doesn't want you to become as he is. Now, that's not true, because God does want us to become as he is. But he's right there to get us in some way to either say the Word of God doesn't say thus and such, or we're not going to follow it. He's attacking the Word to get the Word out of our heart, because obviously faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We live in a society to whereby we have the right to be bitter, fight back, to lie, to run with the world. Be all you can be is what the army says. And in many, many ways we can do what we want to do and it's really nobody's business. And the devil is one whereby he's going to seek in, in very subtle ways to get you to follow those things and not follow after the truth of God's word. Now look at Luke 4 in chapter 1. Or Luke 4 in verse 1. Rather. Let's look at Jesus. You'll see something very similar, except the circumstances are considerably different. In Luke chapter 4, and verse 1, we're told Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. First of all, look at the location and the place, far from a garden. They were in a garden surrounded by trees. They, had, they were given the uh, permission to eat of all of the trees except for one. But Jesus, where is he at? Anything but a place of, like a garden. He's in, he's by himself. There's no fellowship with anyone else. He was in the worst natural environment you could find in that area. I'm sure he, he was hungry. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He was surrounded by scrub brushes and scorpions. And I'm sure he was hot and sweaty and dirty, tired, hungry. And the tempter comes to him, and, the, and it's right in the same thing, just brought forth a little bit different. The devil is trying to get him to compromise and disobey the Word of God. That's what he's going to do with us. He's going to tempt us to not obey the Word of God, to come up with some other way to scoot, scoot around it and get around it. And that's what the temptation, that's what we're called to resist. We're called to persevere and endure. We're called to hold fast to God's word. Here he comes. Being 40 days tempted to the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, afterwards he was hungry. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it may be made bread. Now you really can't appreciate what's here unless you read over in uh, Luke 3.22. What is here? You gotta understand something. Jesus here is being tempted and tested as a man. We're told that after his baptism, verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him and a voice came out of heaven. So here he is as a man being baptized and this audible voice, he's 30 years old, this audible voice comes out of heaven and here's what he says. You are my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was the only begotten. He was unique, one of a kind. He was full deity, and he never laid that. He, he never was not full deity, but he did not use his deity when he walked upon this earth. He walked upon this earth as a man, tempted, tested, and tried as we are. He did not use his divinity during his walk upon this earth. He is our example. 
giving that unto us. So he was like we are. And he heard this voice of encouragement from God above and said, you are my beloved son. That's the word that he heard. And when he went into the wilderness, he was led by the Holy Spirit who had just come into him. And the Holy Spirit angrily had said to him, I don't want you to eat. Forty days he went out, he was fasting without eating. The Holy Spirit said, I want you to go out into the wilderness. He told him to go there. For what reason? To be tempted, tested, and tried. He didn't run from the trials. When the trials and the tests came along, he persevered, he endured, he overcame. We have the temptation to run from every test and trial that comes along. We won't mature and we won't grow as we should if we run from every every temptation and every problem and every trial that comes along. We just run to man for the quickest way to get out of that situation and we don't want to trust God. We may get out of that situation, okay, but we're not really growing and maturing as we should. I mean, you can say you know something about what the Bible says, but you really don't know it in your heart. The way to get the word from your head to your heart is by, in the time of trial and testing, trusting God. And not always looking to man and their offers to bail you out of some problem as quick as possible. You do that all the time and you're going to have leanness in your soul, the Bible says. But anyway, if he was led into the wilderness, not some garden, but out in the desert, sitting there hungry 40 days looking at scrub brushes roll around, probably scorpions crawling around, maybe some snakes. It was hot. He was sweaty. He stunk. And the devil comes to him and he says to him, he doesn't say in verse 3, the devil said, since you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. He said, if, if you really believe that voice that you heard, if you really believe you're the son of God, then command these stones to be made bread. Now, if the Holy Spirit inwardly would have said, Jesus, it's time for you to eat. Command those stones to be made bread and they'll be made bread. He would have done that. But he knew that this was the devil that was tempting him to do that, that he did not have that authorization from the Holy Spirit. And he wasn't about to just presume that it was okay to do it without authorization to do it just because he had a need. And a lot of people today, a lot of churches today, just presume that something's okay to do because they got a need. And they come up with all different kinds of ways and doing things contrary to the Word of God. And all why? Because they're trying to promote their ministry. They're trying to promote their church. He could have said here, promote your ministry, Jesus. Get things going on in the right direction. Make those stones in the bread. Don't you think he could? He could have done that. He had that kind of power from within. That he could have commanded a rock to be turned into a loaf of wheat bread. He could have done that. But he did not do that. And it's sad to see that a lot of... Well, it's sad to see some ministers give in to that temptation of the devil to do things to try to promote their ministry, to try to promote their their ways by turning stones into bread. I was watching a man the other night on Christian television, and he believed that God wanted him to pray for the healing of deaf left ears. And he was in a third world country. I don't know exactly which one, but it was a very huge crowd, thousands of people, and they were about 98% black. It looked like something like Jamaica or some, some maybe an island, or maybe he was off in Africa. That doesn't really matter. And he started praying for people. And he would pray for a left ear to be opened up, and then he would put his finger 
in the right ear, and he would whisper into the left ear. And I saw a couple times where when he whispered into the left ear, the hands went up and they said, Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I believe they received the miracle and the healing of their ear. If they were deaf, they were hearing. That's touching to me because I got, <laughs> because of my hearing. But anyway, and I was getting blessed. And then he had one came up, and when he prayed for the man and put his ear, finger into the right ear and spoke silently into the guy's left ear, the guy did not respond whatsoever. And it was an obvious situation where the man did not receive a healing. And I'd been there, and I thought, oh boy, let's see what, how he gets out of this one, because that's a tough spot to be in, to whereby you pray for someone to receive something in front of a crowd and they don't receive it, and right away, if you're not careful, the devil will want to use that to, to really stir up some doubt and unbelief. It's a tough spot to be in. But anyways, instead of dealing with it in a way, and I'm not telling you how he should have dealt with it, but and maybe in a different way by saying, well, we might be having something here a little bit different. Let, I'm going to have some personal attention given to you by some ministry over here. Guys, would you take him over and we'll, we'll deal with him special this time? This is, this is a special situation that's going to require a little bit more than, than what we want to do right now. But I'll tell you what, God's going to open your ear. Leave it on a positive note. No, he pushed it. He knew the man did not believe. And knowing the man did not believe, he was just coaxing the man to say, I believe. And he embarrassed the man to the point where the man said, I believe. But you can tell by the way that he said it, he didn't really believe. But as soon as he got it, he kind of forced the words out of him. The man said, we got it, we got it. And I thought, no, you didn't. No, that's the kind of stuff that, that takes away from Christianity. You're trying to turn stones into bread. Learn to be led by the Holy Spirit. That's not the way it was to go. Praise God for the ones who did receive healing. But there's a great temptation there to try to prove and justify your faith by forcing something that is not God's will. And coming up with your own methods and your own ways of doing things to try to get others to think that everything's just greatly blessed because they're looking at circumstances and other things. And you're really trying to turn stones into bread. He responded back by saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He quoted the scripture. He quoted the word. He said, I'm not going to deviate from the Word of God. He was led by the Holy Spirit in his, what he was doing, but the Word of God told him that man did not live by bread alone. He stuck with the Word. He remained faithful to the Word. He didn't try to, uh, to do something contrary to what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do. The second temptation was that Satan came along and he said, verse 5, the devil took him up onto a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I wonder what he saw. Did he see the United States in a primitive form? Maybe it says he, it says he took him up onto the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I mean, maybe he was able to, you know, for whatever, he was able to see all around. And the devil said, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of it that's delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it, I will. All you need to do is worship me, and it will all be thine. I thought when I read that, uh, you know, sounds like he was just offering him the world real cheap. Doesn't it sound like those credit card offers that are always coming through today that are always offering you the world for real cheap? Oh, and they're gimmicks to ensnare. 
Mark 8.36, Jesus said, What is the profit of man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The devil's one that will give you ways to gain the things of this world, but if it's compromising the Word of God, you can have the things of the world, but in reality you're not gaining the things of God. And when you go into the next world, this world's staying behind and perishing away. I mean, it's sad to see Christians, instead of just saying things in the Bible the way that they are, leaving God's Word the way it is, they always got to in some way change it, twist it, pervert it a little bit. You see, there's a lot of Christian television whereby it seems like there isn't a day that goes by, or at least a week that goes by, that somebody's not out there hammering away on money issues, trying to get people to give to get, and that's their message. And they don't deny it. One man said one time, he said, well, I've been, I've been criticized and told that I preach a message of give to get. And he goes, yeah, I do. He didn't deny it. People have got a mindset that, well, if I sow seed faith dollars into this spiritual field, I'm going to reap back a big harvest, and I can go buy me a new car, and I can go buy me a new home, and I can go out and buy me all the things of this world. All i got to do is just sow into that field out there, and that field is some guy's ministry. And so they just keep on giving and giving and giving, but it's a message of giving to get and of pursuing after the things of the world through a new means. Instead of going to Las Vegas, we go on out to some big ministry somewhere. You say that's a form of, yes, it is a form of gambling, what they're doing. They're trying to get something for nothing. They're, they're, it's almost, it, it, it's sad to see them go that way. And then people get burned out and they get upset and they get bitter. They get angry with God. And the opposite the opposite extreme is when they get like that, then they just cut everything off, and then, then they're not doing at all what God's will is. You know, it's hard to live a, a disciplined life to whereby what God blesses you with financially at your job, your, your place of employment, or other income that you come in. It's hard, for example, to look at that and right away Uncle Sam comes in and takes about 50% of that, 40% of that right off the top. You want to say, man, that's not fair. And now to think I'm going to take another chunk off that and use that for the work of God? There's a great temptation to listen to the devil in that regard to say, no, you've got too many things in this world that you need. And if you follow my advice, you'll have those things. And his advice is just the opposite. His advice is either give to get, like he's using them to promote that message, or just give as you feel like it, as the impulse strikes you. And then the result is there is no sowing. And if there is no sowing, there is no reaping. The devil will, will take it from you. There's a balance, and he doesn't like balance. He likes extremes. We talked about that last week, getting one direction or the other. The devil is one that he's going to right away seek to get us to compromise upon the Word of God. Well, after the response back, when Jesus said unto him, verse 8, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The response ought to be, I'm going to serve the Lord the way that he has described to me in his Word, and I'm going to be faithful to it. Stay with it, friends. Listen to me. I've been, I've been serving the Lord for over 30 years. And I'm not saying everything's always been perfect, but I'm staying steady. And I'll end with the other side of the thing that the devil uses to accuse us sometimes of. 
God's not harsh. He's very merciful, very gracious, and very kind and loving. But he wants us to stay the course as best as we possibly can. And I've seen some along the way depart from that course and go back off into the world and its ways, and it's got them no better. It's got them a lot of heartache and sorrow. As for me, as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. No regrets. God's been so, so faithful and so much of a blessing. But, he, but Jesus quotes him back scripture here, and the devil is almost like, oh, well, I can quote scripture. He brings him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself from thence. For it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91, He shall give his charge, angels charge over thee to keep thee in all their ways, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. And he recognized right away, okay, the devil's quoting scripture, but he's distorting it. He's twisting it. That's what the devil does. He distorts and twists the scripture. And here he distorted it and twisted it, like a lot of people do if you're real close by. Like in Mark 16, we're told here things, for example, that can easily be distorted and twisted by some groups when he talks about handling snakes and drinking poison. Jesus said in, in verse 18 of Mark 16, that concerning those that believe, he says, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. And yet, we've got... Some churches today, not all that many, but some, that talk about how that if you've got faith, you can drink poison and handle snakes. I ran into one of those groups on the Internet when I was searching out some different ministries, and I ran into a snake handling service. And it said to click here to play the video. And it was for real. They got it on video handling their snake. I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. You know, it'd be one thing if you're out like with Dolan and his family, and they were out west, and they were walking in the uh, in the national parks, and along comes some poisonous snake. You know, the Bible says, "Hey, God is faithful to protect you and deliver you from those harmful things." But it's nothing to go pick it up and play with it. You know what I'm saying? He didn't tell us here that we that uh, we should pick it up and play with it. That's just ridiculous. And as far as drinking deadly things, John, those bugs will not hurt you if you trust the Lord. Amen. Well, let's put bugs in his coffee. And she wasn't testing your faith. It was an accident. Okay? Nothing shall by any means hurt you. And I think maybe that just happened because it gave me a little extra for my sermon this morning. The bottom line, the bottom line is this. Satan attacks the Word of God. He's either going to get you to question it, whether or not you heard that right, go by some feeling, distort it and twist it, because he wants you to disbelieve it. He wants you to question it. He wants you to disobey it. He wants you to become like those in the period of the judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. He wants you to fall into unbelief. Why is unbelief sin? Because it calls into question God's righteousness, God's omnipotence, God's justice, God's love, and so forth. God wants us to trust him in spite of circumstances and say like Job, who had lost everything, though he slay me. Yeah, well, I trust him. And when you say that, sometimes people will say, well, you're telling us that we should just follow after a blind faith. No, I'm not. Roman Catholic doctrine, they have a doctrine called fide simplicita. That's blind faith. 
Finis implicita. Biblical faith is Romans 10.17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. When you hear God's Word, when you read God's Word, you are given a choice. You're going to be tempted to obey it or not to obey it. If you obey it, you're yielding to the Holy Spirit. If you don't obey it, you're surrendering yourselves to the devil in the flesh. Bottom line. And if we do that, we don't prosper. Finis implicita, what is that? Well, that is a Roman Catholic doctrine. When something is plainly implicit means something that is applied or understood, like tradition. A lot of things going on in churches today are man-made traditions. Jesus spoke about them in his day. But something that is explicit is something that is clear and obvious and scripturally sound because it's obvious that Jesus said it. So, Fide implicit as a term for belief of that which is implied by that which is explicitly known. Now, this is right out of the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia. I cut it and paste it for him. They use various, and they say it's used variously in Catholic Roman, in classic Roman Catholic theology. Doctrines of the church are to be believed implicitly, though they may not be explicitly known. In other words, it's like this. If you're a member of the Roman Catholic Church, you just do what we tell you to do, and if you can't find it in the Word of God, that doesn't matter. It's just something that you're supposed to do because you're in the church. Where does it say in the Bible? Father, and I'll use that in their way. Father, where does it say in the Bible that we should pray to Mary? Father, where does it say in the Bible we should pray to the saints? Father, where does it say in the Bible that there's an intermediate place called purgatory? Father, where does it say in the Bible that we are not to. We are not allowed to partake of the sacraments. Father, where in the Bible does it say that men of the priesthood are not allowed to get married? Father, where you know all different kinds of doctrine that they come up with, and what they will reply back is, and really it comes down from the Pope. If the Pope says this is the way it is, this is the way it is. Doesn't matter about the Bible. He's Christ's vicar upon the earth. And so they blindly follow the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church because they're afraid if they don't, they won't, they won't be in the kingdom because the church is the kingdom in their minds. So they follow, that is, fight as implicitum, blind faith. We're not asking for a blind faith. What we're saying is that that which is explicitly revealed in the scripture and to you by the Holy Spirit, God expects you to obey it. And resist the temptation not to obey it. Let me just quickly, and this will only take just a little bit. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 3. We're called to fight the good fight of faith by resisting the temptations that the devil throws at us to compromise the Word of God. We may talk about resisting temptations in another message to add to that. But let me give you the other thing that the devil does to try to defeat us and overcome us, and that is his accusations. Revelation 12 says he's the accuser of the brethren. Now, I'd like you to look at Zechariah 3. We're told here in the book of Zechariah, it says, He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and he stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. 
And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head that be like a, a turban. So they set a turban upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by, and the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt judge my house, and shalt keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among those that stand by thee. These that stand by thee. Do you remember what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? What happened? Huh? They were, that's right. They were clothed. They were given clothes. Now he talks about here Joshua standing before the Lord and Satan is right there pointing out to him, he's filthy. He has no right to stand before you. He's filthy. And the Lord says he's a brand plucked out of the fire. I looked at a, the other night there was a fire in Toledo. And there were a couple of firemen, actually it was Maumee, I think is what it was. There was a couple of firemen that were over by the fire truck and they were trying to get some oxygen and get their breath, but they were filthy. You know, in the fire you get a lot of soot and you get a lot of uh, blackness all over you, you smell, you're hot, you stink. I used to be a volunteer fireman many, many years ago. And so you get filthy in a fire. And that's why Joshua wasn't Satan as the accusers right there saying, he's unworthy to stand before you because he's filthy. You know, when you go before the presence of God, you have to be clean. For Adam and Eve to come into the presence of God in fellowship, they had to be given some new clothes. They'd be clean. And what I like about this is that our Lord and Savior is resisting the accusations of Satan by saying, I pulled him out of the fire. We've all been pulled out of the fire. Now, there are going to be times when you give in to Satan and you fall in that, and you fall and you get dirty because you didn't resist those temptations as you should. But the last thing you want to do is let him keep you in bitterness, in self-pity, in wallowing about the past. See, you go that direction and you don't want to receive the forgiveness and the mercy and the kindness of grace of God, then the devil's going to defeat you there. I mean, we are the prodigals sometimes, not doing what we should. But God the Father is like when he sees us plucked out of the pig pen. Slay the fatted calf. Bring forth some new garments. Bring forth a pair of shoes. Because they that were wallowing in the mire have come back. There's a difference between the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. He doesn't do it with a, a condemning way. He'll, he'll admonish. He'll rebuke. He'll spank you. But he's always right there to let you know that he's a merciful, loving, heavenly Father. And he's glorified when we're plucked out of the fire and he washes us and cleanses us in his blood and closes us with new garments. And Satan is right there to always point out the past and point out the failures and point out where we're not making it. But Jesus is right there saying, they're mine. I plucked them out of the fire. Clothe them, wash them, make them presentable. And that's what he does with his blood. I think you get the idea.
Sometimes the devil will come into people's minds and tell them they've gone too far. They've sinned away the day of grace. Don't listen to the devil on that. Resist that. I mean, it's one thing to have an attitude whereby you don't take seriously sin in your life. That's not what we're saying. But on the other hand, don't let the devil kick you around. Learn to accept your forgiveness when you go to God and ask him for another chance. That's what grace is all about. And let him wash you and cleanse you and make you presentable and put forth a determined effort to resist the temptations and walk in righteousness as you should. Because we're all firebrands pulled out of the fire, aren't we? Yes, we are. Father, I ask this morning that the Holy Spirit would use the word to do a work of, of conviction, of discernment, of sobriety. We have an arch enemy who's out to defeat us and overcome us. And I pray the Holy Spirit would use the word that when we're tempted to compromise upon the word of God, we would recognize all the subtle little ways that the devil uses to get us to be unfaithful to the, to the pure word that's been given unto us. You didn't give us a revelation in Scripture, a, a word that was to be picked apart. You said these things were profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness, and we're thoroughly furnished. The problem is not with your word. The problem is with the devil always wanting to get it, to change it, to distort it, to get us to question it. Use the word this morning, Father, to whereby we can rise up against him and say like our Lord and Master, get thee behind me, Satan. Father, we ask that blessing